Well, Sherry, thank you for sharing those, and Harlan as well. Just what a blessing to just hear about what the Lord is doing around the world. So we have a, a good and great God, and His work is certainly not limited to the walls of our building or even our community. So, so thank you for sharing. Well, church, we are wrapping up Haggai this morning, the fourth and final oracle of Haggai. So will you stand with me if you are able? We will be in Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. The word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brothers. On that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares Yahweh, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, this morning as we dive into your word, help us to have open ears and soft hearts May we be ready to hear what you have to say to us. I pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the passage that we read this morning is actually a passage of hope, even if it feels quite odd. You may wonder, what did we just read? It seems a little, little strange. So I want to read to you from Psalm 13 to kick off this morning. Psalm 13 says this. This is of David, by the way. How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Yahweh my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So those are the first four verses of Psalm 13. That's how David starts off. And you can hear just the tension in his words as he's crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, everything around me seems to be falling apart. Where are you? Do you hear? Do you see? And I think today's passage in Haggai really is an answer, a clear and steady answer to the question of where is God? Now, today's message is not going to be particularly practical. As we kind of dive into the passage and walk through it, you may be wondering at the end of the day, okay, well, what do I really do with all of this? And I want to give you a picture or kind of describe what I'm trying to do because it's not very practical today. Actors often find it difficult to act in front of a green screen or they may find it difficult to act against a CGI character. You know, you have like a real person who's talking to, you know, a computer-generated image and if they're in front of a green screen or, or that type of thing, it, they struggle. Why? Well, because they don't have reference points. They don't really have anything to kind of be like, oh, this is where I am. 
And as a result, the acting suffers. And so what I'm trying to do today is really build a backdrop or, or paint scenery for you or, or put you physically in a location in your mind. I guess that doesn't make much sense. Physically in a location in your mind. Put you into, in an intellectual space where you have a backdrop that kind of everything else in your life rests in front of. So when you encounter different things in your life, you'll have this theological backdrop ready to support you so that you're not like an actor acting in front of a green screen and be like, well, I have no idea really what they're going to put up behind me, but I guess I'll just act anyways. No, this, I'm showing you exactly what is real and what the Lord has said. Okay, so that's what we're doing this morning. And we're faced with the reality of evil and wickedness. This passage is speaking to the reality of evil and wickedness. We've been in the series, First Thing First, talking about how God has told His people to build His temple first, to be about His purposes, His presence in the world. And the people were faithful in doing that, yet they still lived in an evil world. They still faced opposition. They still faced trials and sufferings. So here we have, in this last oracle of Haggai, which came on the same day as the third oracle of Haggai, you have these glorious promises of God. We're going to see God's answer to opposition, to suffering, injustice, and death. All right, so what I want to do is spend a lot of time this morning talking about what the original uh, hearers would have heard. Because it sometimes may be a little different than what we would hear today. So I'm going to spend a good chunk of time un, uh, uh, unwrapping that. So be patient with me, but we're, we're going to kind of put our heads in their minds. So let's start again, getting back into our passage, kind of starting off in, in verse 21, the second half of it, where God talks about what He's going to actually do. He says, I am about to shake the heavens and earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. So what, what are we talking about here? Well, God is talking about judgment, this idea of shaking the heavens and the earth. We saw it back in verse 6 of chapter 2, so we're revisiting this theme, and it is this picture of judgment over everything. When you see the heavens and the earth put together, the technical term is a merism, not that you really care or need to know that, but it's this idea of these two things and everything in between. So all of creation, God is going to show up. This idea of shaking comes with the idea of God arriving and Him bringing His justice. He is going to appear and He is going to judge. And who is He going to judge? He's talking about all the nations, all the kingdoms. Now, in the Scriptures, when we see references to the nations and the kingdoms of the world, especially in the Old Testament, that is a stand-in for all the wickedness of the world. Because basically you had the people of God and you had the rest of the world. You had those who walked with God, had faith in God, Yahweh, and you had the rest of the world, the nations who opposed them. And it's the same thing for us today. We have us, the people of God, and you have the world. Now also in the New Covenant, we're called to go into the world, to the nations, and bring wicked people to know the Lord, bringing them to faith. But it's still the same idea. You have the people of God who have faith, and you have all the nations who are out there not worshiping the Lord. So this is the first promise that we have. There's basically two promises in this passage. And the first promise is a promise of judgment. The, first, the, the readers would have heard a promise of judgment where God is going to come. He's going to overthrow the kingdoms. That is, He's going to take away their authority. He's going to destroy their strength. So He takes away their ability to kind of do what they want. And how does He do it? 
He says, I'm going to overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Now, you may read that and think, well, that sound, that's pretty cool. Sounds like a, a fun image of how God's going to destroy them. And it is, but it's also more. This is actually, specifically, the, him overthrowing the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down. That comes from Exodus 15. Pharaoh and his army, his, well, his army, I should say, was swallowed up in the sea in chapter 14. And then in chapter 15, you get this beautiful psalm talking about and worshiping God who has rescued his people. And it starts out with saying that God has caused the horse and the rider to go down into the sea. So when Haggai shows up and he talks about God overthrowing the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders going down, the original hearers would have thought, oh, the exodus when God rescued his people. So it's a glorious thing of hope where we see God's past deliverance popping up again. Oh yes, I know God delivered us in the past so I can have hope for how he's going to deliver us in the future. But we also see that everyone is going to go down by the sword of his brother. And oftentimes, when God's people faced an overwhelming foe, how did God deliver them? Well, he delivered them by turning the enemy against himself. You see that in the story of Gideon. You see that in the story of Jehoshaphat where God's people faced these armies made up of multiple peoples, and those peoples began fighting against one another, and God's people were delivered. So here we have a picture of deliverance through the Red Sea, and God delivering His people through the foolishness of, of the wicked. So we see that God is bringing justice. And so that's our, our first promise that we have in this passage. God will bring justice to the wicked world just as He has in the past. He's bringing justice to the wicked world just as he has in the past. That's what the Haggai's first readers would have understood by this, this declaration of the nations being shaked or shook and the, God bringing the writers down, him, them turning their swords against one another. So that's the first promise. Here's the second one. God's justice and the promised son of David will come together. His justice and the promised Son of David come together. You cannot separate these two things. So let's see this in the text. In verse 23, On that day, this day of judgment, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares Yahweh, and, I, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. Remember, that's Yahweh of armies. Now, Zerubbabel, let's talk about him again. We've, we've touched on him a little bit in this series, but he is the governor of Judah. But more importantly, he is the heir to a broken throne. He is the one who would be king if the Davidic throne had not been overthrown by the Babylonians. And Zerubbabel, he was the one who kind of has led the people in the rebuilding of the temple. Now, one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible is 2 Samuel chapter 7, where we see that David's line is indeed incredibly important. So let me show you just real quick, chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, 12 and 13 says this. He's, this is God talking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, that's a singular offspring, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We get this beautiful promise 
that one day there will be a Davidic son who will reign forever, who will have an eternal kingdom. Okay? Now we have Zerubbabel, who is part of this broken line. And we're left asking the question, has God forgotten his promise to David? Not only that, but let's see what happened with uh, some of... Excuse me. Let's see what happened with... uh, one of David's descendants. We have Keniah. He's also known as Jeconiah. He was a wicked king. He's one of the last kings of Judah. This is what God has to say about this guy. As I live, declares Yahweh, though Keniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. And then down in verse 30, thus says Yahweh, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So we have God saying, you will no longer be the signet ring. The signet ring was the symbol of authority. Remember back in our our series on Esther, how the signet ring kind of showed that you have the authority of the king. And we have Jeconiah or Keniah being rejected by God. He's being cut off. And God says, yeah, none of your kids are going to be king again. So Zerubbabel actually comes from a a little bit of a different line. uh, Not from uh, Jeconiah, but from a different uh, descendant of David. But here we have God saying, I have rejected this part of the line. And, And the people of Judah would have been wondering, well, God, are your promises to always have a son of David sitting on the throne? Are these going to be fulfilled? God, have you forgotten us? Ultimately, this promise right here, back in Haggai, verse 23 of chapter 2, is a promise saying, no, God has not forgotten. God will keep his promise. He is restoring this Davidic line because we have Zerubbabel, being raised up as the signet ring. Same imagery where God cast off Jeconiah. God is now raising up Zerubbabel, saying, yes, again, you have my favor. But also, you may kind of miss this in passing, but he says, O Zerubbabel, my servant. David was often described as my servant by God. When God speaks of David, he frequently says, O David, my servant. So Haggai is not He's not using this language loosely. The eyes or the ears of the original readers, as soon as they hear this, oh, my servant, wait, okay, David. We're thinking about David again. Oh, the Davidic line, this promised king that God has said will come. He's going to come. And this restoration is linked with that day when God will judge the world. Now, you may be wondering about this judgment of the world, this day of the Lord. What is it? Because you see it mentioned a lot, and it can be kind of confusing. So just real brief, I want to talk about it. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment, and it's mentioned by name in eight different prophets, but we also have allusions like we have here in Haggai to it. Haggai doesn't say the day of the Lord, but he says that day, and it's after a description of judgment, so he's clearly talking about the day of the Lord. And generally, in the prophets, there are many little days of the Lord. The prophets will talk about a specific event in time when a nation is going to come and judge God's people. And usually that, you know, comes and passes pretty soon afterwards. 
However, those little days of the Lord are ultimately pointing to a big day of the Lord, a day of the Lord where God is going to judge the whole world, all of His enemies, deliver His people, show Himself to be the supreme authority. That is the day of the Lord. And the New Testament writers use the day of the Lord to refer to the return of Christ. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 1.8 and 2 Peter 3.10. But ultimately, the day of the Lord is when God's justice is going to come. So, the original hearers, again, would have heard this. God's justice and the promised Son of David are going to come together. And this restoration that's coming is sure. You get three times God saying, declares Yahweh. On that day, declares Yahweh. Then he talks about Zerubbabel, declares Yahweh. And he's chosen him, declares Yahweh. Three times in one sentence. I think he's making a point, isn't he? He's like, hey, this is going to happen. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. What the Lord says is, God says this is going to happen. So, the people, when they hear this, would have heard that there is a day coming God hasn't forgotten, and this eternal king is going to come. Okay, that's what they would have heard. Now, let's start making connections to our context and our world. Ultimately, Zerubbabel is pointing towards Jesus as the promised king. Zerubbabel is a type of Jesus. Now, you may not know what the heck I'm talking about when I say that, but think about the Old Testament in this way, that there's a lot of shadows and images that are pointing to something greater. It's like looking at something in maybe 2D versus 3D. And when I say that there are types, what I'm saying is that there are lots of things in the Old Testament that say this event here is like the greater reality that's going to come. The New Testament writers clearly read the Old Testament in this way. Whenever they're reading the Old Testament, they're like, oh yeah, these things that happened before, oh, they were speaking of something far, far greater. Michael Barrett, a pastor theologian, he says, he gave this definition of a type. He says, a type is a real historical person, event, or thing used as an object lesson or symbol to foreshadow or predict the actual future realization or fulfillment of the pictured truth. So that's what Zerubbabel is doing here. We're given a picture of somebody in the line of David who is leading his people in the building of the temple, that is the presence of God in the world. Does that sound familiar to our king, the Davidic king who leads his people in the construction of his temple, the church, God's presence in the world? He will come and judge the world. So Zerubbabel is a picture of what is to come. He's a picture. On that day, this Davidic king, Jesus, will be recognized as the rightful king. Again, you may be wondering, okay, I get that, but again, how is this important? How does this speak to us? What am I supposed to do with us? Ultimately, it's pretty simple. And I hope this feels like a no-duh moment when I show the third point. This is God's promise to us through Haggai. Justice is coming through Jesus. Justice is coming through Jesus. Church, God has not forgotten us. And he has not forgotten or overlooked the evil in the world. All of these promises that say justice will come, Jesus is going to bring that justice. 
God doesn't abandon His promises. The people in Haggai's day, they saw in part, but they never got to see in full. They continued to live under evil oppression. They got to see a physical temple get built, but they didn't get to see the presence of God truly among His people living in their hearts like He does today. They saw in part, but we see in full. We know who the Davidic King is. We know who deserves our allegiance and our worship. And it is Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the eternally begotten Son of God. That is our King. I want to read to you from Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16. I'm not going to have it on the screen, but I want you to listen. To listen to our, what, it, what, what John says about our conquering king, the king who is to come. Because I think what Haggai would have wanted his readers to hear or understand and take away kind of emotionally is the same thing, but more powerfully, what we get in Revelation 19. This is John speaking. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, Yahweh of armies, remember that? And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Church, this is our king. This is the way he is described, where he is going to come and do away with all evil. And we are given this beautiful picture of hope where we have this all-powerful, completely authoritative king reducing evil and wickedness to rubble, destroying it, undoing it all. On that day, when Christ returns, sex trafficking will be no more. On that day, when Christ returns, war will be no more. On that day, when Christ returns, abortion will be no more. On that day, when Christ returns, racial injustice will be no more. And on that day, when Christ returns, divorce will be no more. On that day, when Christ returns, domestic violence will be no more. On that day, when Christ returns, persecution and hatred for the church will be no more. On that day, when Christ returns, Sexual predation will be no more. On that day when Christ returns, pornography will be no more. And on that day when Christ returns, exploitation and greed will be no more. On that day when Christ returns, all wickedness, all bitterness, all envy, all strife will be no more. And that is something hopeful for us because we long for that day. We long for that day. The people of Judah were looking forward to the promised king. We too look forward to the promised king, our promised king. We look forward to his justice. But we have the added privilege of looking back and knowing exactly who he is and what he's like. There's no question 
who our king is. We're going to be uh, heading into to Matthew chapter 8, 9, and 10 uh, starting next week. And I cannot wait to be looking more at our king, what he's like. So it's kind of fun just how this message dovetails a little bit into where we're going. Okay, so I, I've, I've painted a backdrop of what Haggai is trying to communicate, that justice is coming. Now, I want to really do get uh, just slightly specific for us in thinking about, okay, justice is coming, so what? Well, first, there's two ditches that we need to avoid, two ditches that, that we are tempted to fall into as a church when we think about the fact that justice is coming. The first one is that I think justice is completely up to me. That's one ditch I can fall into because I forget that, that justice is coming. That's one ditch, okay? That becomes a problem if I think justice is up to me because then I will fight tooth and nail to make sure that nothing bad ever happens to me. I'm too afraid to lose. I'm too afraid to experience persecution or I won't know what to do when justice comes because I'll say, woe is me. My ability to be the salt and light of the earth, to let my conversation be seasoned with salt and to be full of grace and truth for the people around me, it'll fall by the wayside because I'll think I need to be this conquering warrior who destroys all evil around me because it's up to me. We have a conquering warrior who is going to come and his name is Jesus. So we don't need to worry, will justice come? It will I don't need to be the one responsible for enacting justice on the world. That's one ditch we can fall into. But here's the other ditch. is I look at the fact that justice is coming, and then I say, I don't need to do anything. Well, Jesus is coming back, so I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to go to church, and I'm not going to participate in God's redemptive work in the world. That's the other ditch. But when I see these passages, I see that justice is God's heart. God cares about wrongs being made right. And so we get to participate. We can look at the world around us and say, okay, how is God calling me to be a part of this? Not in the sense that I have to do everything and make all things right, but I get to be a part of something in some way. And you know what? If my efforts don't ultimately bring about any justice, I can rest in that because I've been faithful and true and I have tried and I've been trusting God and I know that one day He will return and all the justice that I didn't take care of, He's got it. He's got it. Okay, so those are the two dishes. Justice is up to me. I don't have to do anything. Okay, so we want to find the place in the middle where it is I rest in the fact that justice is coming, but I'm still active in making justice happen. Okay, church, I also want us to have two emotional responses. One, we need to have a fearful awe, just a fearful awe, because there but by the grace of God go I. When I look at how God's wrath will be poured out on the nations, the truth is, is that's what I deserve. I am no better than those people over there. There but by the grace of God go I. I should have a fearful awe, not, oh God, are you going to smite me? But, oh Lord, you are powerful, you are mighty, and it's only by your grace that I stand not consumed. That's one emotional response. And secondly, we don't need to despair. We can take heart. and We praise God for His justice. Now, I want to spend the last bit of time here this morning addressing those of you who uh, don't know Jesus as your Savior. You would say, no, I'm, I am not a Christian. Because I think this passage here really lays out 
some hard things that everyone everywhere needs to wrestle with. Because this passage here talks about what the Christian God is going to do about evil. You may be familiar with the argument against the existence of God called the problem of evil. And it basically goes, if God is all-powerful, because he allows evil to exist, he must not be all-good. Or, if God is all-good, he must not be all-powerful because he's, there's evil in the world. He doesn't do anything about it. Well, there's multiple problems with this argument. I'm just going to give you two. One, problem one, if God doesn't exist, then there's no such thing as evil. The argument presupposes that evil is a real thing. We all look at evil in the world. We all look at evil done to us, and we'd say, yes, that is evil. But if there is no God who defines right and wrong, and it's just something that society has created or something that has evolved or something that we say is advantageous or comfortable, then that doesn't mean it's always true for all times, all places, all people. It's not real evil the way that we think about it. Evil, then, won't exist. The second problem, though, which is, I think, even a bigger one, is that it assumes that we know all things. We would know, we know that God doesn't have any reason for allowing evil to exist. That argument presupposes that. That we know that God couldn't have a reason that would allow God to, ex- or for, to allow evil to exist. But the Christian response is, look at what God has done with the existence of evil. He took the most evil, wretched act in all of history, that is, the only innocent man in the entire world being crucified on a Roman cross, he allowed that evil act to bring about the greatest act of all time, which is the redemption of the people of God, the salvation of our souls. So God himself endured suffering. The God who cannot suffer put on flesh and suffered in his flesh, experiencing wickedness, experiencing evil, not being on high and saying, oh, isn't evil so bad? You know, yeah, I created everything, but evil, eh, that doesn't look so good. You know, too bad. No, he put on flesh and he experienced evil for our good. Our God does have a reason for allowing evil to exist because it shows his compassion and his grace and his glory. And one day he will destroy all of that evil. Justice will come. All of us deserve to die. We deserve the wrath of God for what we have done, for our rebellion against Him. Every single last one of us. But God invites us to respond and to trust Jesus Christ for our salvation. I mentioned Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews quotes from Haggai 2. He both quotes uh, verse 6 and the passage that we read today when he talks about shaking the nations. Uh, We'll we'll see that here in the next slide. But I want to read this to you uh, from Hebrews. Because we have a God who deals with evil, but he's also compassionate. Author of Hebrews says this, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's He's not talking about me, by the way. He's talking about the Lord. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. By the way, he says, yet not now? So this promise from Haggai is for us. Now God is promising to shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, the nations of the world, in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
We have a God who is just, but He invites you to take refuge in Him. He says, I am compassionate. I am gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I have to be just, but you can take refuge in me. I will pour out my love on you. You can be my child. Will you believe? Will you trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? In Jesus, will you trust or will you trust in your own efforts? That is the message of the Scriptures. That Jesus is our conquering King, but He laid down His life for us and we are invited to join His unshakable kingdom. So if you are here today and you have been wrestling with whether or not to believe in this Christian God, I hope that you can see this is our Christian God where, yes, He is mighty and fearful, but oh, He is so good. We have this King who is full of patience and kindness and love, and He invites you to believe. I invite you to believe this morning. But again, church, I hope for the rest of us that we would take solace in the fact that He is good and He is rescuing and His justice is coming and His justice is coming through Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we thank You for rescuing us from the wrath to come, but we also thank You that You are dealing with evil. Father, may our hearts praise You because of that beautiful reality that You are a just God And we thank you that one day we will be in a place where there is no more evil and that all wickedness will be gone. We will see you face to face and we will rejoice forever and ever because you are our Lord and you are good. We pray all this in Jesus' conquering name. Amen.